All right, so today we're talking about failure. And uh, we're not talking about the kind of failure where you kind of give it your all. You know, you, you take a risk, you go do something crazy maybe. You take a chance and, and after giving it your all, it fails. We're not talking about that kind of failure. We're talking about the kind of failure where, where we do something that is wrong, where we fail God, or we fail people around us. And, and then there's no one we can blame but ourselves. Uh, we have usually kind of a, a desire, it's kind of a knee-jerk reaction to blame other people when, when we fail. I think of the story about the CEO who asked uh, somebody on his staff to write a 20-minute a, a speech that he was going to give at a convention. And after the convention, he comes back and he's angry. He's angry at the guy. He said, I told you to write a 20-minute speech. You wrote an hour-long speech. People were leaving halfway through. Guy scratches his head and he says, I wrote you a 20-minute speech, but I also gave you the two copies you asked for. <laughs> now, we do. We do. We want to we blame someone else instead of first looking to ourselves. Uh, but what we're talking about here is where we blow it and we know there is no one that we can blame. And the disciple Peter uh, was one of those people, and he's the one that we're looking at today. Uh, he failed in a very big way. He denied Jesus three times, and then... Uh, after denying Jesus three times, um, he realized what he had done. He had failed in a big way, and there was no one he could blame but himself. But in the passage we look at today, it's the passage where Jesus restores Peter. And he does it in just an incredible way as this passage unfolds. It's, it's really one of the most interesting passages in Scripture. The details mean so much. Jesus orchestrates a whole restoration for Peter. He does it compassionately. He does it powerfully. So Peter, we know a lot about Peter because the Gospels give us a pretty detailed portrait of this, this man. It's, it's one of the signs of the authenticity of the Gospels. Is if, you, if you realize historically, three of the Gospels were written and distributed while Peter was still alive. Three of those Gospels, while Peter was still alive as a leader of the church in Jerusalem... And well-known throughout the whole Christian world, uh, very, very early on, of course, uh, here are Gospels being produced, and they have story after story of Peter just blowing it in all kinds of ways. <laughs> and it's, it's one of the signs of the authenticity of, of Scripture, because why would you make up stories about your leader, who right now is leading, and tell terrible things about him, things that he did? And now, of course, not everything that he did was wrong, but Peter had some of his biggest, and in this case, really, his biggest failure very shortly after having one of his greatest triumphs. And the triumph happens as Jesus and disciples are on their way to Jerusalem. And on their way to Jerusalem, Jesus gathers the disciples at one point. We looked at this probably a few months ago. He gathers his disciples together, and he says, who do people say that I am? And uh, the disciples start shooting out all kinds of names from the Old Testament and John the Baptist and what they're doing is all the speculation as to who people think that Jesus is. And then Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So it's Peter that calls out who Jesus is and we don't quite get just how important it is what he said sometimes. Frederick Buechner does. He says this, he says, it took guts to say that. And Jesus knew it. Because if it was true, it was enough to blow the lid off of everything. And if it wasn't true, you could get yourself stoned to death as a blasphemer for just thinking it. 
Now, not long after this incident, Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. He gathers his disciples together. He's at the Last Supper, and he tells the disciples, one of you is going to betray me, and all of you are going to abandon me. And one of the things that Peter says in typical Peter fashion, I will not, all the rest of these might, but I am not going to abandon you. Um, Well, Jesus turns to Peter, and he says, before the rooster crows, you will have denied me three times. Now, there's no way in Peter's mind that that could ever happen, but that is exactly what happens. And when it happens, one of the Gospels tells us, Jesus' words come flooding back into his mind, and he's broken and he weeps bitterly. Failure often follows our greatest triumphs. There are probably all kinds of reasons for that. Uh, Sometimes after our greatest triumphs, we're tired, and that makes us more vulnerable. Uh, It's taken a lot of willpower to get through that triumph, and our willpower uh, muscle is, is tired. Sometimes it's because we get overconfident after our greatest triumphs, and we forget that we are always, every single day and every moment every day, we are vulnerable. We're, we're vulnerable to attack. We're vulnerable to spiritual attack. We're vulnerable to our flesh. And we forget that sometimes after our triumphs. We get a little bit arrogant. We get a little bit conceited, and we think we're, we're, we can just float right, right through this. Failure often follows our greatest triumphs. We have to, it's really after our greatest triumphs that we really have to have our antenna up and especially be connecting with God and especially be remembering why we should be humbled in our present state, even after our greatest, our greatest triumph. Now, the story goes on, so uh, I, wanna, I want us to look at what happens next. So please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 21. That's where we're going to focus today. And if, um, if you don't have a Bible with you, we have Bibles in the seat rack in front of you. So if you just reach down, that's the page number there. And um, if you have a smartphone or tablet device, we are using the NIV, the New International Version. Uh, So if you're new with us, just a little thing. Uh, Inside of the New Here brochure, hopefully you got one of these, is a sermon application guide. And the idea behind this is some of the big ideas of the sermon are already in there. If you'd like to take notes, there's plenty of space to take notes. And then on the inside, there are some questions for reflection. Our small groups use these as well. And Um, our home small groups that meet throughout the week. But at the very bottom of the inside here are family discussion questions because almost every week at Five Oaks, what we're studying in here is following what the kids are doing in kids' ministry. We've been doing that for a couple of years. And so they're studying this same passage. And so if you have kids down there, it's an opportunity to speak into their lives and to share what you're learning, which is the best way, best way to share your faith and for them to grow in their faith is to hear mom and dad saying, I'm learning something and I learned something uh, today. All right, so... Jesus rises from the dead. We've, over the last couple of weeks, uh, we're, we're in this series about Jesus the risen King as part of a larger series going through the whole New Testament. And so over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the Gospel of John in chapter 20 and Jesus going specifically to the disciples and showing himself to them. And then he, Thomas wasn't there. So the next passage we looked at last week was him presenting himself to Thomas, doubting Thomas. And so uh, at that point, after the Thomas passage, For all intents and purposes, the Gospel of John ends. So we're in chapter 21, but I want you to look back a couple of verses to chapter 20, verse 30, where it says this. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. 
But these are written, so John is saying, this is, this is my purpose statement about why I'm writing this. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Now, commentators, historians that, that look at this, they say that is how you end a book at that, in, that, in the first century. That is how you end a book. You, you kind of wrap it up in that way. And for all intents and purposes, he had ended the book there until... John decided that he wanted to add one more story, and it's the story of this remarkable restoration, one of the most remarkable restorations that you'll ever read about. So this story recalls a time when Jesus appears to seven of the disciples. So look at John 21, beginning in verse 1, where it says, Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the son of Zebedee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were there. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they're sitting around trying to figure out what to do. Uh, Peter was a professional fisherman. Several of them had been professional fishermen. Fishermen. So um, they're going to go out and they're going to get some food. They're not, they're not going for bass or walleye or something like that for fun. They're, they're getting food. Um, so... They went out and they got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called up to the, out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? He's far away from them. We're going to hear how far in just a moment. They say, no. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. That's uh, a little bit of a clue uh, because that's ridiculous. <laughs> And they would only do it because they're starting to go, this sounds familiar. <laughs> when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, really the obvious, it is the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say it, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him that he had taken off and he jumped into the water. Now there's something about the way that John writes this, the commentators say that the language that he uses, some of the descriptive terms that he uses, give a sense that this is a fresh morning, this is a new day. Uh, so there's a freshness to the story, but there's also a lot that's familiar in this story. Uh, once before, of course, Jesus had told the disciples, had told Peter, throw the net on the other side. Now, of course, at that time, he didn't know who Jesus was, and he argued with him a little bit, um, or he didn't know him very well. Uh, this time, he doesn't argue. And um, it was at that time that Jesus told Peter specifically, you're done with the fishing business, uh, the fish fishing business. I am calling you into the people fishing business. And so it's familiar in another way. Peter, earlier in the story or earlier in his uh, relationship with Jesus, also jumped out of the boat, except that time it wasn't shallow. <laughs> You know, he jumped out of the boat and tried to walk to Jesus during a storm. And he actually walked some steps on the water uh, until he took his eyes off Jesus. And he looked at the water and he goes, uh, and he, you know, he falls into the water. So Jesus, so th that's another familiar aspect of this. Peter likes to jump out of boats. Now, um, Jesus uh, has already spoken to Peter when he spoke to all the disciples. But Jesus has some unfinished business with Peter. Uh, Peter, like Thomas in the previous passage, needs to be recommissioned in a very special way. Personally, he needs to be recommissioned. 
The denial that he had, that he had, he denied Jesus has created a chasm between him and Jesus, and that chasm needs to be crossed. So N.T. Wright, a great New Testament scholar, says this, not even the resurrection itself could wave a magic wand and get rid of the memory of his denial and the shame he felt over it. Nothing could except revisiting it and bathing it in God's own healing. And that's what's going to happen in this passage. He is going to revisit the night of the denial in detail after detail. So one of the most important things to see at this part of the story is that Jesus initiates this restoration with Peter. Jesus initiates it. Jesus comes to the shore. Jesus is the one who calls out. Jesus orchestrates everything to recreate the circumstances of the night of the denial. Jesus does that. And God wants to restore us when we fail. And he's able to restore us when we fail. And I can't emphasize that enough. If there's something, there's like three things I want you to take away from this sermon. One of them is I want you to be reawakened, all of us, me, to be reawakened to the initiative that God takes, that he is the one that takes it. We have offended him. We have sinned against him. We've rebelled against him. We have denied him and his lordship over and over and over in our lives. And yet God takes the initiative. Now, the greatest initiative is the initiative that he took to come to this earth in the first place. But he keeps taking the initiative. He wants, he wants to restore us when we, our sin, creates a chasm between us and him. And here's Jesus on the shore, and, and there's Peter out in the water. And Peter has to step into the water, in a sense, into the chasm that's separating him and Jesus. He has to step into it. So pick up in verse 7. We'll reread part of it. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say it, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards away. Now that's an interesting detail about a hundred yards away. It's trying to show just how big the chasm between Jesus is and where the disciples are. And I don't think it's, I don't think it's accidental. Um, they didn't measure by yards. The NIV has given us the equivalent of their measurements. So if you want to think about how far they are away, think of a football field. But don't think of it from the sideline where you look at it from here to here. Uh, you, if you've ever been down on a football field, think of it as you're standing on the goal line and looking all the way to the other goal line. All right, that's how far away they are from each other. Peter has to step into that space. Look at verse 9. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Now, that's another really important detail. Because if you go back to chapter 18, uh, when Peter is denying Jesus, he is followed behind, he's run away, and then he's gone to where he knows Jesus is going to be. He's out in the courtyard, and people start asking him about, or someone starts asking him about whether he's a follower of Jesus. A detail that comes up twice in the story, twice in the story, is that there is a charcoal fire going, a charcoal fire that's burning. Now, for some inexplicable reason, if you turn back in the NIV and look, it just says fire, but it's the same exact word that they translate here, charcoal fire, and that's what it is, a charcoal fire that's, that's burning. So the smells, think about smell. Do you ever 
smell something. I think the only other thing that probably is as powerful to evoke memories and emotions is music as a song. But think about certain smells that when you smell it just brings something back. It might be the smell of a cabin you used to go to as a kid. There was a, a certain smell, and by smell, I don't know if that's the right word, definitely not odor, smell, right? You know, not, not something bad. But there was a certain smell at my, my cousin Henry and his family's house. So much so that Lois would sometimes uh, say to me when we were dating, I'd go out to their house. I was at school here at Northwestern, and uh, they lived in Mound. I'd go out to their house, and I'd come back, and she'd go, you smell like your aunt and uncle's house. And she went, you know, in a good way. Smell evokes memories. And, and so Jesus has this charcoal fire going. <clears throat> and now Jesus uh, has made this charcoal fire. And he's invited Peter and the rest of the disciples there, the other six disciples, to join him. Um, now this is a true story. This happened. But it is also being written, it seems, like a metaphor. Uh, a metaphor for us because if we want to find restoration after a failure in our lives, we have to step into the space, the chasm that's been created between us and God by our failure, by our sin. We have to step into that space if we're going to find restoration. That's, by the way, the second most important idea that I have for you. And that is that, that we're going to, you, you have to, if, if we're going to be restored, God is going to come to you. He is going to initiate but he is going to, but you have to, you have to respond. You have to step into, into that stay, space. If we want to find restoration after failure, we have to step into that space. Look at verse 10. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. Now that's a, another really interesting detail because look at the verse right before it. It says, when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. What's on the fire already? Fish. And yet, he says in verse 10, bring some of the fish that you've caught. Now, I want you to hold on to that detail because we'll come back to it right at the very end. Pick up in verse 11. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore it was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Now that's, a, that's another little interesting detail uh, because it's a, it's a detail that keeps coming up in the resurrection stories and it's that how difficult sometimes people have recognizing Jesus right away. One of the women, for example, I think it's Mary Magdalene, who runs into Jesus in the garden outside the tomb, and she thinks he's the gardener. Doesn't recognize him right away. There's something different about him. N.T. Wright, uh, again, says the, the different, uh, we don't know what it is, but the different is Jesus, Jesus has the resurrected body. Paul says we will be given resurrected bodies after our death. Jesus has the resurrected body. And there's something different about it. Different enough that, that it's unrecognizable. It's, it's like uh, going back in time into the 16th century, and uh, the, Wright gives this idea, kind of going back in time and maybe showing someone your smartphone or something like that. And going, hey, look, let's uh, log on to the internet. <laughs> and the person just 
not even being able, seeing a screen light up and maybe people on the screen and not being able to comprehend, what is that? Or maybe not even being able to see the faces that are actually there on the screen because it's so outside of their experience. And it's outside of their experience. This is what Wright says. This, this is a whole new world. It isn't magic. It isn't ghostly. It's real, but it's different. God help us if we ever imagine that our normal everyday world is the sum total of all that there is. What a dull, flat, boring idea. And the Bible's constantly pointing to that day when we'll be given resurrected bodies. That's why we grieve, but we don't grieve like other people when we lose a loved one who knows the Lord. We grieve, but we don't grieve like other people. We have hope. We pick up in verse 13. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them. And he did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus had appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now you have to wonder what Peter's thinking at this point. Uh, if he's picked up all the clues, all the familiarity of this scene, all the ways this is new and different, but all the ways it's the same as so many other things. If the smells have evoked the failure, if he's wondering in his mind, is Jesus doing this on purpose? And, and, and not just wondering in his mind uh, about that, but, but feeling the guilt and the shame and the burden of what he had done. Could he even look into the eyes of Jesus while Jesus is talking, or does he have his head down this whole time? It's hard to step into space between us and God. It's very difficult sometimes to step into that space. And that's where, but that's where the healing and the restoration begins. We, we avoid it sometimes because we think that God doesn't, God is angry at us. We avoid it because we're proud and we don't want to admit our failure. Um, we avoid it because we're blaming other people for our failure. But it's so important to step into that, into that space. That's where the healing begins. And when you step into that space between you and God, you're stepping into the space of God's love and grace. And that's the third big idea that I want you to leave here with. God initiates. We have to respond. But when we respond, we're stepping into a space that's not a space of anger, of retribution, of penance, you know, now you've got to do something to re-earn God's love. It's not that. You are actually stepping into the space of God's love and God's grace. That's, that's what I want you to leave here with. And when you step into that space, you're going to res God is going to respond. And God is going to take you in. Now, Jesus never mentions Peter's denial. Not once. And yet what happens next is all about his denial. And it's, if he hasn't picked it up up to this point, there is no way by the time this is, he doesn't get it right away, but there's no way he walked away from this conversation and didn't get that this was all about restoring him after his denial. Because um, Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? He doesn't ask him once. He doesn't ask him twice. He asked him three times. Look at verse 15. When they had finished eating, Peter, J Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? These could be the fish. Not fish, but his life of fishing. More likely, he's pointing and looking at the other disciples because that's what Peter said. 
they'll all leave you. They'll, they'll all leave you, but I won't. Which is his way of saying, I love you more than any of these. And he says, do you love me more than these? Kind of recalling what he said that night when he said he would not deny him. He says, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time, okay, subtlety is all gone here. (laughs) He said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked him the third time, so obviously he doesn't get what's going on here yet. Because he had asked the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Three times Jesus asks. Three times Peter answers. Three times Jesus just pats him on the back and says, don't worry, it's okay. Just go back to fishing. (laughs) No, that's not what he does. Three times he does the most remarkable thing. Three times he recommissions him to ministry, to work, to mission, to service. We saw last week when Jesus shows up with the ten disciples, one of the things that he does is he breathes the Holy Spirit on them, which is an act of recreation, and then he commissions them. He says, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Now, Peter has already, already been recommissioned, but Peter has this thing, this denial, and in a sense, what Jesus is doing here in asking him three times and three times, giving him a mission, go out and, and do my mission, three times, he's saying, Peter, that means you too. In spite of your denial, that means you too. Go and feed my sheep. Now, we, re- we all respond in different ways. Uh, to failure. Some of us uh, respond by becoming more determined to make it up to God. It's like God is angry at us, and if I can just do enough good things, I'm going to be able to get back in his good graces. Some of us become despondent and we hide, and the irony of that is that when we become despondent and we hide, what we actually become, we take our sin, which is already self-centeredness, we've done something that we want to do and not what God, or not what we should do for someone else, we've done what we want to do, what we think is right, self-centeredness, and what we do when we become despondent and, and hide is we take that, that self-centeredness to another level. Instead of receiving forgiveness and stepping out, what we do is we become more and more focused on ourselves. Now, sometimes there's, there's a medical, you know, reason for that and, you know, condition. But a lot of times it's because we've just gotten into the habit of beating ourselves up and getting more and more focused on ourselves, and it's just taking sin up a notch. All the while thinking, well, you know, I'm just being humble. We're not being humble. We're not being humble if we don't receive forgiveness and step out in service. Jesus opposes both those ways of living. He doesn't want us to live motivated by guilt, like try to get back into God's good graces, try to appease God. And he doesn't want, and he wants to call us out of our pity party where we get just focused on ourselves. What's the greatest commandment, Jesus said? It's to love God with everything you are and love other people as yourself. And to love God means to serve him. 
And to love your neighbor as yourself is to serve them. It's to put their needs before our own needs. So three times Jesus reminds Peter, but he's also reminding us to live the greatest commandment in spite of our failure to serve God out of love and to step out of guilt and shame and begin to serve others. That's what he calls us to. And we can live the greatest commandment because Jesus has taken our guilt. It's what we celebrate in communion. We remember, right, that he was broken instead of us. That's what it means for us, instead of us. We remember in communion that his blood was shed instead of ours, our own guilt. He shed his blood for our guilt. Now, one of one of the most important aspects of the restoration is this recommissioning to serve God and others, and that's where I want to take you back to that one detail that I asked you to hold in your mind. God doesn't recommission us and call us out of our guilt and failure to serve him because he actually needs us. Like, God can't do it on his own. And that's where that, that, that little tiny uh, detail he already has the fish. And he says, bring, bring your fish. And someone has said, I, I, this is not an exact quote, and I can't remember who said it, but it's something like this. God doesn't use people simply to get tasks done. He uses tasks to get people done. It's how he changes us. It's how he shapes us. It's, it needs to be a part of the rhythm of our life because it's part, of the, it's part of the rhythm that gets us not so focused on ourselves, but focused on God serving God and serving others. Let's pray.